as we consider the one who has come, Jesus Christ, the King. Let's, uh, let's spend a moment in prayer and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've made. We thank you for Jesus Christ and the reality of the incarnation, that God was made flesh. We thank you that all that has ever bothered us, all that has ever plagued us, will be taken care of in you, that you will make all things right, that through Jesus Christ, all things will be made right. We thank you that our sin has been taken away in Jesus. Help us today to see more and more of the greatness of our Savior, the greatness of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Help us to understand more and appreciate more what this time represents, not just 2,000 years ago in the manger, but even right now. And help us to look forward to your coming again. We ask together that your word would be made clear to your people, that I would not get in the way, but that you would deliver the message to the hearts of your sheep. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, of course, uh, it is Christmas Eve. I guess I should say Merry Christmas. Okay. Um, so many good hymns, so many good songs that for some reason feel weird when you're not singing them on Christmas time. But maybe we should try to like normalize non-Christmas time singing of Christmas songs at our church. We can be the change because <laughs> there are so many good songs. And I don't know if you've particularly noticed this, but especially in our hymns, many of the songs that we sing at Christmas time reference Jesus Christ as King. King is like a major, major theme in the hymns. So just a few examples. We sing, Worship Christ, the newborn King. We sing that He was born the King of angels. We sing, Born is the King of Israel. We sing, with the angels let us sing, Alleluia to our King. Born a King on Bethlehem's plain, King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. We sing and proclaim through our singing, that's what singing is, is a, a melod melodious, melodious proclamation. That's what songs are, where we're preaching. And we sing that Jesus Christ is King. And in the Old Testament, as you read through the prophecies about Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah to Israel, you know what you see in there? A lot of stuff about Him being King. Over and over and over again, you see prophecies about this King and His kingdom. And there's a reason why when Jesus came the first time, that the disciples were expecting Him to overthrow the Roman government. The disciples were expecting him to establish a physical kingdom and to reign as king at that time. And there's a reason why. It's because when you read through the Old Testament, which was all that those disciples had for Scripture, there's a lot of talk about Jesus Christ being king, the coming Messiah being king. And so as we look at Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, we're going to be seeing one of the most special promises in the Old Testament. And I want us to consider what it meant to them then, what it means to us now, and what this means for the future. 
Let's read together here. Look down with me at Isaiah 9. It says in verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. What an amazing pair of verses. There are a lot of words up there on the screen because those are big verses. Those are long verses. And I want us to dwell on what this means and the implications for us. If we just hone in on verse 6 and consider what it means for unto us a child being born. Verse 6 is a a verse of hope, isn't it? What a great verse of hope. But I'll submit to you that it looks forward even more than it looks back for us today. You know, this passage is one of those great examples of uh, what's called a mountaintop prophecy, where there are several things predicted, several things laid out about what the future will entail. But it doesn't give us a timeline. It doesn't say... 700 years from now, a child will be born. And then, a couple thousand years after that, the government will rest on his shoulders. It doesn't say that. But we know that something like that is the case because we're living it, right? The child has been born. And this hopefully won't come as a shock to you, but the government is not yet resting on his shoulders. (laughs) The government is resting on someone else's shoulders, and it shows every day. But this is an amazingly unique hope. Verse 6, a child will be born to us. A child is coming. A son is coming. A son is coming who will make all things right. Who would think to look to a child? I mean, if you ever needed another example of God's ways not being our ways, here it is. Ray Ortland has said about this very thing, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. I like that quote. A child will be born. A child will be given to us. They were to look for a child. And notice it does say specifically to us. If you're using the King James Version, it will start by saying for unto us. Here it says a child will be born to us. The us here is Isaiah and the rest of Israel, Isaiah as a prophet to Israel. He's saying, to us, this child will come, this child will be born. They did not deserve that promise, of course. Israel was in a bad state. Their state got worse and worse after this. They were rebellious. They were the covenant people of God who were not the obedient people of God. And yet, even in their rebellion, even in their wicked deeds, they're given this blip of hope. A child is coming to us, coming for the covenant people. And we even see in Isaiah's prophecy that he's coming as the covenant himself. Turn with me toward the end of Isaiah, Isaiah 49. Uh, We're going to be over the Old Testament quite a bit today, but I want you to be able to turn around at least in Isaiah. I have several cross-references just in Isaiah, and this is one of them. Isaiah 49, verse 8. Look carefully at the words found in this verse. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you, and I will keep you 
and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. This is a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy regarding the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ Himself. You'll notice that the you, Y-O-U, there is capitalized. It says, God the Father speaking to God the Son, I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people. Jesus Christ, as we now know Him, His name, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, He is the substance of this covenant. Later, this covenant was called the New Covenant. This new covenant that God would make with the houses of Judah and Israel, He is Jesus. He is given as the covenant. And there's a day coming when they, talking about the houses of Judah and Israel, you can just say Israel, the nation, they will enter into that covenant. We are told in Scripture that all Israel will be saved, Romans chapter 11 says. That day is coming for them. They will meet their Messiah, and they will believe that day is coming. Yet in the meantime, God has begun this new covenant work with us, the church. You're not from the house of Judah or the house of Israel, I imagine. Okay, I'm always curious whenever I meet someone who's Jewish, so if you happen to be Jewish, just talk to me afterwards and we'll catch up on that, because that would be very cool. But you, in all likelihood, are not from Israel. And yet, this new covenant work has begun. You exist today as a believer in Jesus Christ. You exist today as someone who has come into covenant with God because of the finished work of Jesus. He has started this new work called the church, a work that was unforeseen by prophets. Remember, Isaiah just saw the mountaintops. He didn't see the timeline. And we're between mountaintops where the child has been born, the son has been given. Yet he's not ruling and reigning from Jerusalem quite yet. And right now, he's ruling and reigning in his church. He's ruling and reigning in our hearts. He's begun this new work. And Jew and Gentile alike can come to Jesus, our covenant, for salvation and for blessing, because Jesus truly is the Savior of the world. Jesus truly is the Lord of the church. And as we look at Isaiah 9, we can see in verse 6 these titles that are given to him, these titles that we can call him as his people in the here and now, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Each one of these titles is who He is. Each one of these titles is what He's called. These are His name because He is called what He is, starting with Wonderful Counselor. Another translation of this could say Distinguished Professor. You could call Him Supernatural Teacher. That's who Jesus Christ is. But I love that word, wonderful. It's a good word. It's a very good word. It's a word that has some pretty heavy implications in the Old Testament. He is wonderful, truly wonderful. His name is wonderful. His being is wonderful. As Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, you could not be more wonderful. He is King of kings, Lord of lords, wonderful counselor. There was a moment in the Old Testament when Jesus appeared. There were several times that this happened, actually, where He appeared before He was born to Mary. And one of those times, he appeared to a man named Manoah, who was to be the father of Samson. And he was appearing as the angel of the Lord. That was his title in the Old Testament. And 
Manoah, when he beheld this glorious figure called the angel of the Lord, he asked him for his name. He said, what, what is your name? I got to know. I got to go tell people I met Dave or whatever your name is. Thankfully, his name wasn't Dave. He replies, instead of with an answer, with a name, he replies with a question, this angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself. He replies to Manoah and he asks, why do you ask my name, seeing as it is wonderful? There's that word again. His name is wonderful. His person is wonderful. But not only is he wonderful counselor, it says here that he is mighty God. What an amazing statement. A child will be born who you're going to call God. A son will be given, and you will refer to him as God. Now, we know, of course, that the Old Testament is extremely monotheistic, meaning one God. This isn't a second God being born. It's not a new God being born. This child, this son, is the one true mighty God, true deity. He is to be, of course, a real human, a real child, yet he is truly God. In theology, this is called the hypostatic union, this reality that Jesus is truly human and also truly God at the same time. He didn't flip a switch. He wasn't human in the morning and God in the evening or anything like that. Simultaneously, by taking on flesh, He is truly human and truly God. That's a view that's unique to biblical Christianity. You won't find that anywhere else outside of the Bible. In fact, in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus Himself is speaking and He makes such a claim. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty mighty God. He's the Almighty. He's not an Almighty. He's not one of many Almighties. He is the Almighty. Not only that, He is everlasting Father or eternal Father, we see at the end of verse 6. Now, this can trip some people up because isn't Jesus the Son? Isn't the Father the Father and Jesus is the Son? How could Jesus be eternal Father if the Father is eternal Father? And how how does this all work? Well, there are two ways that we can understand this, but it starts with recognizing what it says at the start of the verse. He is a son. A child will be born to us. A son will be given. We do recognize him as the son, the son of God, the son of David. What does it mean by eternal father? Well, it could mean two things. One, that he is the one who rules over time. He is the one who is Uh, the Father over time. He's outside and over time, the creator of time. He owns time, you could say. In fact, later on in Isaiah's book here, you can go to chapter 57 and look at verse 15. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, Isaiah 57, 15. We're talking like top three for Jeremy here, okay? Is Isaiah 57, 15. And look at what it says. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Such a great verse. But look at the start of the verse there, the first half. He is the one who lives forever. He's the ruler over time. He's in authority over time. And of course, we know that God's kingdom is forever. As we sing in the song, uh, a mighty fortress. 
His kingdom is forever. We see later on in the New Testament, we'll look at this in a moment, but Jesus' kingdom will be forever and ever. So that's one way of looking at it. Another way to look at it is that Jesus provides fatherly care to His people. This wonderful counselor, this mighty God, He is the one who for everlasting, for eternity, He will provide care for His people, fatherly care. In Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on Isaiah, he says, "...if mighty God speaks of His power and might to fight for and defend His people, always a father," that's his translation of it, "...speaks of the tenderness and heavenly anxiety He has to care for them in all their circumstances." He is always a father, always caring for those who come to him in faith. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and fourthly in our list, prince of peace. He's the prince of peace. He is the ruler. That's what a prince is. Someone who has authority. The ruler who brings peace. And not only is he a ruler, not only is he a king, not only could he be called a prince, but did you know that he is also a priest? In fact, he's our priest. We don't have priests like the Roman Catholic Church has priests. We don't have, uh, you know, human priests. We have the, the final priest, the great high priest, who is truly human, truly divine, who always lives to make intercession for us in heaven. And we can go to that priest at any time, can't we? We can go directly to that priest for forgiveness. We can go directly to that priest for care. He's the Prince of Peace. He's our great high priest. In Zechariah chapter 6, there's an amazing account where this prophet is told by God to go to a man for the purpose of basically foreshadowing who Jesus will be. This is Zechariah chapter 6, starting in verse 11. It says, "'Take silver and gold and make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit down and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. What an amazing prophecy. A priest on a throne. Now, you see, they didn't really have a category for that. You were either a king or you were a priest. And Jesus, He's the priest who is king. He's, he's the caring Savior who also sits on a throne and rules and reigns with all authority. And between those two offices, they're married together and there is peace because He holds those two offices simultaneously as our wonderful counselor, as our mighty God, as our everlasting Father. And this is not just inner peace for our specific battles in life, though there's certainly application to that. This is worldwide peace. This is like on this earth, ruling and reigning from a throne, ending all battles. And this peace will come by way of Him eliminating all of His enemies, John Oswald, in his commentary, says, it becomes clear that Isaiah has an eschatological figure in mind. That word eschatological means end times. He has an end times figure in mind. 
This person will not be a king among kings in Israel. Rather, he will be the final king, the king to end all kings. I like that phrase. Jesus, when we sing about him at Christmas time being king, we recognize that he is the king to end all kings, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And what a day, glorious day that will be when the government will rest on his shoulders like a cloak. You take a jacket or something and you throw it on and it's on your shoulders. One of these days, Jesus is coming back and he's putting the world on his shoulders. And unlike us, he can handle it. Unlike us, he can handle authority perfectly. And he will show himself to be the king to end all kings. His status as both God and prince will be made explicit in his kingdom. And yet, it's directly connected to one of his creatures, a prince who was one of his creatures, David. Look at verse 7. Look at how Jesus' kingdom is connected to David. It says, "...there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore." This coming Messiah is to rule as king from the throne of David. Not just any throne, a specific throne, the throne of David, which is the only throne that God has ever promised to establish forever. Did you know that? There's one throne that God has promised to establish forever, and it's the throne of David. And this is the throne upon which the Messiah will rule from. And this is based on the promises of God. Israel was to expect a forever ruler from David's line in fulfillment of the kingdom promise. God made a covenant with David, a covenant that had three parts, that he would make him a house, he would make him a kingdom, and he would establish his throne forever and ever. And God makes good on his promises, doesn't he? There's not one promise that God forgets, not one promise that slips by him. And this promise, this covenant is going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ when he comes to rule and to reign as king. The son to come would fulfill the picture given to David, that his house, his kingdom, and his throne would be established forever. But what's amazing is that David will rule in the kingdom again too. I got to show you this. As we're talking about the future kingdom of Christ, there's so much to see. The Bible has so many details. I want to show you so many things. But I want to show you this in particular. About 400 years after David died, a prophecy comes through Ezekiel that talks about David having a role in that kingdom as well. Let's look at Ezekiel 37, starting at verse 24. Ezekiel 37, 24 to 28. There are so many beautiful kingdom prophecies in the book of Ezekiel. But look at this picture given to Israel about a time of their future restoration. Ezekiel 37, starting at verse 24. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in order, sorry, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them 
and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. How grand is that picture? I mean, that is an amazing picture that God has given of this kingdom. Now, some people look at where it says David there in that passage and say that that's in reference to Jesus himself. But we see later in the prophecy that this David makes offerings for himself and for the people. So it's talking about David. This is the house, the kingdom, the throne that was promised to him, the restored kingdom that is coming over which Jesus will reign as king the king to end all kings. But all the glory in this kingdom will go to the ruler, the son of David, who springs from the stem of Jesse. Earlier in Isaiah, this is Isaiah 11, it talks about Jesus as the stem of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And so a great, 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 great grandson of Jesse, Jesus, he's going to spring from that line, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. And let's consider a couple other promises in the Old Testament given about this time. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, a very famous Christmas verse. It says, "'As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity.'" Everlasting Father, eternal Father. He's from all eternity, and He will be ruler in Israel. But before that, He will be born in Bethlehem. What an amazing thought. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, another one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David. Notice it says, for David, a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. What a day this is going to be. The king to end all kings will be exalted for David on behalf of David, for the sake of David. And he will lead David in peace. He will lead Israel in peace. He will lead the whole world in peace. And he's going to lead Israel in place of the imperfect and rebellious kings of years past. Have you read through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles? It's just like failure, failure, failure. Oh, he's kind of good. Failure, failure, failure when it comes to the kings. It's just like bad, 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 bad. This king is completely good. This king has nothing imperfect about him. He will be the perfect king, the king to end all kings. But there's more detail to behold in the Old Testament because Jesus' rulership as king won't just be for Israel. Now, you see that quite a bit in the Old Testament, but it's not just for Israel. In fact, he's going to be king over the whole world. It says in the Bible that all the nations are going to submit to King Jesus. All the nations. Now, I'm so glad I'm going to be there. I am so thankful I'm going to see it with my own eyes. I'm going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. I'm going to see the nations submit to Jesus, to, to see Him exercise perfect authority over the face of the whole earth. I mean, your soul should just thirst for this day. 
because we live in such a messed up world. We live in such a messed up time. And look at what's coming. This is Isaiah 49 again. So if you could turn with me to Isaiah 49. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. We looked at verse 8 earlier. Let's back it up and look at verses 6 and 7. We see that his territory, his kingdom citizens, they're clearly defined and it goes beyond the houses of Israel and Judah. Isaiah 49 verse 6. The father says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore rather the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. There is coming a day kings and princes will bow down and kiss the feet of the king to end all kings. There's coming a day when the whole world will recognize there will be no doubt that Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, is the Savior of the world and the ruler of all the nations. He will rule with a rod of iron, and the nations will be in total submission to King Jesus. In Zechariah chapter 9, we see another prophecy about this time. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Through that prophet, God says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off from the chariot, or cut off the chariot of Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. That's pretty expansive dominion, wouldn't you say? From sea to sea. Not only will there be expansive dominion, but there will be expansive peace. King Jesus comes not with threats, though that's an element of what's going on in that kingdom because he is, of course, all authority. But he's also coming with peace. He is speaking peace to the nations. Now again, we're between the mountains. Did you notice in verse 9 it talked about the donkey? Your king is coming to you mounted on a donkey. That was Jesus' first coming. And this dominion from sea to sea, this peace from the river to the ends of the earth, that's the second coming. And right now we're in between. This is what, if you want to get really fancy, let's impress your family tomorrow at Christmas dinner. This is called the interadvental period. The interadvental period. We're between the first advent and the second advent. You're between the mountaintops. And we're waiting for the day when Jesus will show that He is the King to end all kings. There are so many amazing details of this time given in the Old Testament, describing Jesus as the perfect steward of the earth. Let's go back to Isaiah 2. There are a couple more passages in Isaiah I want you to see. Isaiah chapter 2, toward the beginning of the book, we're seeing that there will be true peace on earth during His reign. 
Not a fake peace, but a true peace that the world has not known since the garden, since before the fall. And let's bring to Isaiah chapter 2, when we go here, let's bring good Bible study skills. Let's let the words mean what they say they mean, and let's let those words soak in and excite us. Let's let those words motivate our hearts. Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 2, it says, It will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us. Remember, He's wonderful counselor. He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and He will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. You excited for Jesus to be king? Go to Isaiah 11 for just nine chapters. Isaiah chapter 11. We get another picture of this time. Again, think, think of this peace. Think of how wonderful this will be to have true peace on earth. Isaiah 11, starting in verse 6, it says, "...and the wolf will dwell with the lamb." Some of you have heard the lion will lie down with the lamb. It's the wolf. "...and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together." and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the, the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play in the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. It's going to be an awesome day. What a day that will be. He alone will receive the glory as the King of kings and Lord of lords who brings peace, true peace. Again, in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14, verses 9 through 11, talk about this time. It says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one, and His name the only one. And all the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. Now check this, verse 11. People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. We know we're not there yet, right? We know that this hasn't happened yet. What's been happening to Jerusalem for the last nearly 2,000 years? It's been the time of the Gentiles. This is what Jesus talked about in the Gospel of Luke. You'll see Jerusalem sieged. That happened in A.D. 70. They came and they trampled Jerusalem. And what's been happening ever since then? Trampling and trampling and trampling and trampling. But what's going to happen when Jesus returns as the king to end all kings? 
Jerusalem will dwell securely. Jerusalem will be restored. Israel will be restored. And he will be the only one. I love that it said that in that passage. His name will be the only one. And as his rulership will expand physically to cover the whole earth, we see too that his rulership will also expand chronologically. Again, back in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, it says about his kingdom, it will go from then on and forevermore. From then on and forevermore. And this is what Gabriel said when he came to Mary. Now we're getting to the New Testament. Now I start my second sermon. No, I'm just kidding. Gabriel comes to Mary in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 30. And remember, these are Jewish people. They know their Old Testament scriptures. Consider what she would be thinking of. I just gave you a bunch of Old Testament prophecies. What would she be thinking of? Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Just what we've been reading. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. There's that expansiveness. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Wow, so amazing. The child of Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That son was coming into the world. That was Gabriel's proclamation. The one who was going to rule on the throne of David, it says in Isaiah 9-7. That was repeated by Gabriel to Mary. The one who was to rule was coming into the world. So what about now, though? Because he's not on that throne of David in Jerusalem. All those prophecies we were reading about, so much of it hasn't happened yet. This beautiful kingdom, this wonderful time on earth of peace, it's not happening yet. Go to Africa and you will not find lions eating straw. It's not happening. Wolves and sheep are not getting along. So what about now? Well, though the fullness of Jesus' kingdom has not yet come into the world, His salvation has, hasn't it? The salvation that Jesus was bringing to all nations has come into the world, and it started with us. Again, this is Isaiah 49, verse 6. We looked at it earlier. It says, it's too small of a thing for Jesus to be His servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the preserved ones of Israel. The Father says, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. We're, we're at that mountaintop, aren't we? That salvation has come. People are bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to the end of the earth. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. They're preaching the gospel to faraway lands because that salvation has come. And Isaiah couldn't have imagined it whenever he was pinning the words, when he was quoting God there. But the salvation of the servant has come even to Utah. This salvation that is brought in by the Lord's servant has come even to Orchard Hills Bible Church. 
How wonderful this is. How good this is that we come to the one who is given as a covenant for the peoples. We come to him and we call him wonderful counselor. He is our Lord and our God. That's our testimony with the doubting Thomas. He is our Lord and our God, our mighty God, our Prince of Peace. Jesus has come into the world. Jesus has lived a life among men in humility and in perfection. And Jesus has died on a cross in your place for your sins. The punishment that we all deserved because of our willful disobedience against our Creator, because of our idolatry of our heart, our pride, exalting ourselves. Jesus died for us and rose again, and ascended on high to act as our high priest now, to act as our king now, to be king of kings and lord of lords for each believer in each one of our hearts, that we can be reconciled to God now and forevermore, to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That's the promise of Colossians chapter 1. You can be in that kingdom today. Though it's not the fullness, it starts now. And one day, it will all be fulfilled on the face of the earth. Jesus is going to bring in justice and righteousness that will cover the whole earth. But He'll do that even now in your own heart. He can bring in justice and righteousness and peace and hope and joy into your heart even today. I love how the end of Isaiah 9-7 says that it's the zeal of the Lord, or you could say the passion of God, that's going to accomplish this. Well, God's passion that will establish the kingdom in the future, it will establish Christ in your heart today. God's zeal will accomplish that even in your life now. As bleak as the world gets, as dark as it seems, as terrible as we know it is, we can know that the King is coming, can't we? We can know that He's going to come and fulfill what was said of Him. He will bring all peace. Will you be there ruling and reigning with Him? Will you be there seeing it all happen with your own eyes? Well, the question is have you received Him? Have you received this child? Though He came the first time very lowly, very humbly, as an infant, the second time He's coming as the roaring Lion of Judah. And He will establish peace by eliminating His enemies, by by doing away with evil on the earth. But you can be in Christ so that His coming is not scary to you, that this second coming is not something to fear, but instead, every day you can wake up and say, come, Lord Jesus. That can be the testimony in your heart if you receive this child. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You have given us so much more than we could ask or think. You are so good to us, and we thank You for King Jesus. Help us this Christmas season to not just see the first coming, but to also see the second coming and to long for your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. Help us to long for that day in faith.
in our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.